are in the little plane. All right, you guys ready? Ready to go. Uh, let's do this. From a thousand feet above the ground, South Florida looks like an endless, soggy expanse of shifting colors. As far as the eye can see, it's just flat, greens, yellows, and blue where the water is. To the west, agriculture. Miles and miles of citrus groves, orchid farms, and sugarcane fields. This is a side of Miami that most people will never see. To the east, industry. The shimmering skylines of Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, and Miami stacked up along the coast. More than five million people living just along that stretch. It's hard to imagine, but less than 200 years ago, almost everything I can see through the window of this little airplane was underwater at least part of the year. What we're flying over right now, this was all Everglades wetland. This is Steve Davis. He's a wetland ecologist and my tour guide for the morning. Steve's also the chief science officer at the Everglades Foundation. It's a nonprofit focused on restoring and protecting this ecosystem, which used to cover almost all of South Florida. This area that is now, we see, developed, uh, that all used to be Everglades. A 60-mile-wide blanket of grass, trees, and water that flowed south from present-day Orlando to Key West's coral reefs. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas referred to it as the River of Grass. The Everglades was one of the best natural defenses against hurricanes and flooding in the region, a sponge that could soak up excess water during the rainy season, and a buffer against coastal erosion and storm surge. But then, in the late 1800s, the Everglades started to disappear. Historically, uh, our perspective was get rid of the water. That's what happened for nearly a hundred years. A century of dredging canals, redirecting water from Lake Okeechobee, draining massive areas of the Everglades. When the draining was done, half the Everglades was gone. And in its place were two things. A semi-tropical megalopolis, the South Florida we know today, and an environmental time bomb. I'm Amy Scott. Welcome to How We Survive, where we're following the money to the end of the world. In this case, back in time to the place South Florida was before it was all skyscrapers and swimming pools, to the Everglades. This is Episode 7, Swampland for Sale. The story of how South Florida became the place it is today is a story about humans who waged a war against nature to create a paradise on Earth. And the price we're paying for that today is the sunny day flooding, the threats to South Florida's drinking water, the red tides and fish kills along the coast. All of that can be traced back to the moment humans decided to drain the Everglades. So if we want to keep living in South Florida, we have to try and undo a lot of what people did all those years ago. The story of South Florida's transformation begins in the 1800s. Back then, most outsiders thought of the Everglades as an uninhabitable swamp. Most of the history of the Everglades is just... uh, 
history of being left alone <laughs> because it was really seen as this gigantic, useless wasteland. This is Michael Grunwald. He's a journalist who lives in Miami and wrote a book all about South Florida's history. It's called The Swamp, The Everglades, Florida, and the Politics of Paradise. And he says in the beginning, paradise was the last thing visitors to the Everglades thought of. Breathing the air felt like sucking on cotton, you know, that you couldn't walk in it. It was just a really nasty slog, and just about everybody who visited it hated it. But by the end of the 19th century, attitudes had changed, especially among wealthy entrepreneurs, mostly men, who came to South Florida from the Northeast and Midwest. They looked at the swamp and saw dollar signs. As unpleasant as this place was, people could see that it was sunny, and people could see that it got a lot of rain. So people thought, hey, this could be America's winter garden. The only problem was that it was wet. Um, so it was no use as a bog. It was no use as mush. But without water, this was always an attractive place to be. I mean, the word that always comes to mind is audacity. <laughs> like, the audacity of these men who drained the this, this swamp. You know, this was like the progressive era, right? Drainage and conservation and the transformation of uninhabitable places into useful places was progressive. So I do think there was this kind of cultural arrogance and engineering overconfidence that kind of combined to make people say, like, like why wouldn't this become, you know, magnificent tourist destinations and incredibly bountiful farmland? Engineers broke ground on the first canal in 1882. Six months later, farmers were planting crops in soil that for thousands of years had been marshy forest. In the early days, before man, there was a band of tropical jungle trees, bald cypress and willow and pond apple and all that. This is the voice of the late Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the environmental activist and author of what's probably the best-known book about the Everglades, River of Grass, published in 1947. They had laid down the spilth of their leaves and the rotting of their roots and rock so that there was a mound of 30 feet of peaty muck. You're hearing an interview she recorded in the 1980s at her home in Coconut Grove. The minute they put the first canals up around the lake, they chopped down all those jungle trees and began to put agriculture and then sugar on that mound of peaty muck. Muck maybe doesn't sound like a selling point, but this was rich, fertile soil. And word of that soil traveled far and wide, enticing farmers to come to the Everglades and see for themselves. Much of Florida is lavishly lush and fertile. Sugarcane grows higher than an elephant's eye. Ads for Florida swampland selling for just $1.25 an acre popped up in newspapers across the country and in Europe. This land is so lush and fertile that, as the saying goes, you plant, then stand back out of the way. All the buzz sparked a small land boom in the region, and Florida's population nearly doubled in just two decades. Now it is the engineer and the farmer who penetrate the great swamp. 
That's what Americans did. We, we conquered the wilderness. We tamed the frontier, and this was really the last frontier. Yes, the Everglades are disappearing. Where there was wilderness yesterday, today there are furrows, tomorrow crops. Each year, thousands of acres succumb to the white man's genius. I guess there's a big difference between having the environment to survive on. You know, you tend to respect it more. You know, when you start looking at the environment to profit on, that's when you start destroying it. Joe Frank is a former leader of the Seminole tribe. I'm a member of the Panther Clan. He lives on the Big Cypress Reservation near Lake Okeechobee, the heart of the Everglades. Back in the early 1800s, when most white people still saw the Everglades as a wasteland, 5,000 or so Seminole people lived there. The Seminole didn't start out in Florida. They were forced there, first by white settlers who ran the Seminole off their land in Georgia and Alabama and into northern Florida, and then by U.S. soldiers who chased them deeper into the peninsula during the Seminole Wars. The 300 or so Seminoles still alive after the wars ended survived by hiding in the tall grasses and dense cypress groves of the Everglades, where most soldiers were too afraid to go. The Everglades offered us food, security, medicine, stuff that we needed to survive as a people. And while the U.S. government was distracted by another war, the Civil War, the Seminole learned how to live in their new environment. When the water was right, whole families would go up in canoes up to the bottom of Lake Okeechobee and, and harvest those areas for turtles. You learn to work with nature in its cycles rather than fighting nature all day long. But in the 1880s, when the businessmen and engineers arrived with their dredges and railroads, the Seminole were displaced again. That forced a lot of the families to move from a self-sustaining lifestyle to new enterprises in which they had no knowledge of. Like tourism. A visit to the Seminoles is only one of Florida's many attractions. A lot of these dis displaced families were able to move up along Tamiami Trail and uh, become roadside curios for a couple of decades. These are Dade County's first residents, the famous and colorful Seminole Indians of the Florida Everglades. They entertain our family with their fascinating souvenirs and thrill them with the dangerous sport of alligator wrestling. By the 1920s, nearly a million acres of the Everglades had been drained, and tourists flocked to the up-and-coming resort towns on Florida's Gold Coast. This is popular Miami Beach, the playground of the Americas, where there's pleasure and excitement for every size vacation budget. This was an era of national prosperity, a time of prohibition speakeasies, Model T cars, and consumption fueled by easy credit. And a lot of visitors to the region stayed. Florida is their home now, and they're as proud of it as if they'd invented it themselves. The state's year-round population grew by more than 50 percent, from just shy of 100,000 in 1920 to nearly one and a half million just a decade later. And the flow of newcomers sparked a building boom that would transform the landscape of South Florida 
forever. New apartment houses springing up like mushrooms with swimming pools, cabana clubs, shops, restaurants. The changes that you've described, you think are, are going to be on the whole beneficial for, uh, for Florida's environment? Well, I see nothing but building all the way right up to the waterline of the Everglades. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas again. They're making a mistake in letting people build, and they got into terrible trouble because they let the counties let the people build where they don't belong. In 1926, South Floridians would get a stark reminder of just how much they didn't belong when all the new development faced its first real test against the forces of nature. On September 18th, just after midnight, the power went out in Miami. Then the phone lines went dead, and it started to rain. Just before dawn, the hurricane made landfall, a Category 4 storm, the strongest in the city's history. 150-mile-per-hour winds uprooted palm trees and snapped telephone poles in half. After 36 hours of unrelenting wind and rain, the storm finally let up. Nearly 400 people were dead, and 10 times as many were displaced. Property damage in Miami exceeded $100 million, more than a billion dollars today. But most of the human loss was in the Everglades. Because of the damming around Lake Okeechobee, water levels were dangerously high before the hurricane passed through. Once it did, those dams quickly broke, releasing a torrent of water that washed away newly built settlements south of the lake. People in South Florida weren't strangers to hurricanes. A handful of storms had grazed the peninsula in the previous decade. But that was before all the development, before the region became America's premier vacation destination. Now there was so much more to lose. And so you might think that the hurricane registered as a warning sign. Caution, not safe for building. Nah. Instead, South Florida officials downplayed the damage and did everything they could to sweep the whole thing under the rug. A week after the storm, the mayor of Miami issued a press release announcing that the city was almost back to normal. It wasn't. The governor of Florida turned down aid from other states in a letter that basically said, thanks, but we're good. They weren't. But no one wanted to admit how vulnerable the region was. This is an actual quote from a tourism ad published one week after the storm. Sure, some lives were lost in the hurricane, but hurricanes come only once in a lifetime. Florida wasn't done for. Miami wasn't done for. Slowly they recovered to build again on a more rational basis. As soon as the water receded, the rebuilding began. Here's Michael Grunwald again. And of course, we promptly forgot about it you know, right after the storm passed, because Florida is really good at rebuilding and forgetting. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's still happening, almost 100 years later. Don't we have to stop doing that, though? Yeah. You know, we are absolutely vulnerable, and 
you know, we live in this kind of state of denial. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. We don't think all the time about how we could get wiped off the map tomorrow, but it's absolutely a possibility. The one thing I will say is that I will bet you money that after the next South Florida city is wiped off the map, it will rebuild and people will come. If people in South Florida took any lessons from the 1926 hurricane and other big storms that followed, it was that they needed to do more to control the region's water and suppress the forces of nature. And in 1947... The United States government, in the form of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, uh, put together what they called a massive conservation project to essentially control the water of South Florida once and for all. The goal was to prevent Lake Okeechobee from overflowing into nearby farms and towns, to cut off the southward flow of water and divert it east and west instead. The pattern was set. All that had to be done was build the reservoirs, the channels, the levees, the spillways. It took 2,000 miles of levees and canals. Foot by foot, mile by mile, the work went on. But they really managed to get control of just about every drop of rain that falls in South Florida. Central and Southern Florida is no longer nature's fool. The rains may come, but there will be no fear in them. And that's how you can have the Sawgrass Expressway and the Palmetto Expressway where the Sawgrass and Palmetto used to be. That's how you can have 8 million people living in what used to be an uninhabitable wasteland. Where living would have been impossible just a few years before. It's common to say, well, if it wasn't for air conditioning or social security or, you know, mosquito control, uh, you couldn't have a South Florida. But really what you needed was water management. Man has had to interfere with nature's cycle of flood and drought to make Central and South Florida habitable. He must continue to change and control the area's topography as long as he lives here. Once he starts... There was no turning back. The only problem was that it created this environmental disaster. By the 1960s, after nearly a century of draining and dredging and developing, the Everglades was in bad shape. With too little freshwater flowing through the ecosystem, wildfires raged during the dry season. Some of these fires have been burning in the Everglades for six weeks. Lake Okeechobee was full of chemicals used by farmers and ranchers. This water is so bad, this lake is so bad, that even the dam alligators are leaving. Along the coast, salt water from the ocean washed further inland, threatening the drinking water supply for millions of residents. The United States Public Health Service closed down a number of wells in Dade County today due to excess salinity. There had been signs all along, but now you didn't need to be an expert to see. This is what happens when the delicate balance of nature is altered by man. The very process that first made South Florida habitable for millions of people was making it more and more uninhabitable every day. Our problems in the Everglades are so great that we are fighting for our life, for all our lives. You must realize that without water, you couldn't live here at all. Eventually, the people in charge in Florida came to that realization, too. Now there's a plan to save the Everglades. But first, we'll have to get rid of some snakes. All right, we're about to go pythoning, go. right? Let's go python. That's after the break. We all want to be our best selves. 
but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Khreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. To see what a century of tampering with nature looks like on the ground, I took a trip to Everglades National Park with my producer, Caitlin. All right, this us? It's me. Here they come. We spot our glades guides at the park entrance. Michaela Spencer. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. And Tom Rahill. The terrain's a little unsteady here, so just be careful. It's just before dusk, and the air buzzes with mosquitoes and crickets and other winged things. That was me getting hit in the face with a dragonfly. So we coat ourselves in bug spray, hop in the back of Tom's pickup, and head into the park. As we cruise along, Tom and Michaela give us the rundown. What birds are we hearing? That's a nighthawk. Are those frogs? That's a pig frog. This big bushy tree is cocoa plum. See that gator right there? It's an alligator. He's right here. Where? He's just moving. If you back up right here, he's in this corner. I just saw his back. This deep in the Everglades, humans are the minority species, but our effects on the environment are everywhere. This plant here is a non-native invasive. That's a Brazilian pepper. One of the biggest problems in the Everglades today is the spread of invasive species, ones people brought here. Another man intervention gone wrong. One of the most destructive is a snake, the Burmese python. I'm sure within our, our field of vision, Out here on the horizon, there is a python. The pythons first showed up in the Everglades in the 1980s, likely pets that were released or escaped into the wild. Now they're the top predator in the Everglades, having essentially eaten their way to the top of the food chain. In the areas where the pythons have established a population, well over 90% of the native animals that they prey upon are gone. Rabbits, possums, deer, bobcats... If it continues taking out these mammal populations, we can only surmise there's going to likely be cascading effects. We talk about an ecosystem as a whole. Every animal has a place in the system. Every species does. Tom and Michaela are professional python hunters, part of a state program to capture and euthanize as many pythons as possible, though they don't really like the word hunt. Hunting is not something you do in a national park. You're pythoning. I'm pythoning. You're pythoning. There we go. 
Now it's dark, and we drive along a narrow road, shining bright flashlights into the thick vegetation as we pass. So what are you looking for? Sometimes it'll have a shine. We're looking for the pattern, snake shape, and sometimes it'll be popping out from the grass. Sometimes it'll be right on the edge of the water. Suddenly, Tom spots something, a flash on the road ahead. There's a snake, there's a snake. We stop for a closer look. See how it's kind of like a little white along the bottom? That's not gonna be a python because it's too early. It's probably a banded water snake. Um, or is it a stick again? I think it's a stick. Oh. It's too still. After a few hours of searching, most of us give up for the night. Oh, come on, we could be here till five in the morning, come on. Tom will stay out, working toward his 1,000th python capture. Managing the Burmese python population is just one piece of a much larger plan for saving the Everglades from collapse. The official name is the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan. It's a multi-billion dollar project with a 30-plus year timeline for fixing over 100 years worth of problems. It was passed by Congress in 2000. Everglades restoration is one of the most complicated projects ever envisioned. Michael Grunwald again. It's tens of thousands of pages of technical documents. It's supposedly 68 different projects, but they all have, you know, 19 different elements. There are still 25 meetings every week about what it's supposed to do. Yeah, it's a lot. But the basic idea is to restore the original flow of freshwater. That means scrapping or retrofitting a lot of the infrastructure humans built to disrupt that flow. The idea is that with more water moving through the ecosystem again, like it did for thousands of years, we can start to repair some of the damage. More water flowing south will help revive native habitats and replenish the Biscayne Aquifer underneath the glades, which six million people in South Florida rely on for clean drinking water. But the reason I got interested in Everglades restoration is because of its potential to help mitigate the effects of sea level rise. As we said, the whole Everglades functions as a kind of natural buffer against heavy rain, winds, storm surge, and flooding. And when they're healthy, elements of this ecosystem also protect against sea level rise, like mangroves. Here's Steve Davis from the Everglades Foundation again. Mangroves are just incredible forested wetlands around our coast that grow in saltwater. Mangroves are so cool. It looks like they're standing in the water, propped up on all these little legs. They help stabilize the shoreline and provide a natural defense against storm surge. One study found that mangroves prevented an additional $1.5 billion of damage in Florida when Hurricane Irma hit the state in 2017. Mangroves are also uh, amazing because they sequester uh, large amounts of carbon uh, and lock it into the soil. Which helps to slow down the effects of climate change. The bad news is Florida's mangroves aren't doing so great these days. Huge swaths were lost in the resortification of South Florida. Mangroves grow along the coastline and can block ocean views, so for decades, developers ripped them out at the roots. Then there are the environmental threats. Sea level rise is bringing more salt water into the Everglades, 
which can make it harder for mangroves to grow. What we've learned over the last decade now is that as the saltwater penetrates landward, those peat soils are disintegrating, in some cases before the mangroves can become established. That means less protection from hurricanes and fewer defenses against rising seas. If we don't restore the Everglades, if we don't get that uh, significant increase in freshwater flow going south, we could also lose uh, multiple feet of elevation uh, around the coastal Everglades. And the last thing you want with sea level rise is land loss in addition to rising seas. Everglades restoration might sound like a hands-off approach to the environment, like we're letting nature just do its thing. But that's not what restoration is. Because if the state stopped controlling the water altogether, South Florida as we know it couldn't exist. Towns in the former Everglades would flood. The agriculture industry would collapse. There's still a lot of water management involved in keeping South Florida habitable and profitable. So really, the goal of restoration is to find a way for people to keep living in South Florida without destroying the environment in the process. And 22 years in, that balance has yet to be achieved. What's the holdup? Oh, bureaucracy, money, politics. Um, it's, it's been a, a real slog, uh, much like the Everglades itself. Everglades restoration has also been controversial. The idea was noble. Clean the water, knock down the levees, let it flow south. Joe Frank of the Seminole tribe says instead, the plan evolved to prioritize agriculture and ongoing development. They put a lot of lipstick on it, but, you know, if you, if you can see a map, you can tell that, you know, it's basically a flood control process to uh, enable a lot more building, a lot more construction, the continued build-out of South Florida. Building that just puts more people in harm's way in the long run. I guess a condo could knock down a tidal surge just as well as some mangroves will, but, you know, it's a high cost to pay. Do you feel like you've been able to have, and your community has been able to have, any voice in this process? Um, when these agencies would come out and talk to us, I think our community voiced its displeasure with them. So they don't come out to the reservations too much anymore. Restoring the Everglades is even more complicated now than it was 22 years ago. The earth is hotter, and the ocean around South Florida is higher. At the same time, South Florida's dependence on the Everglades, that's never been clearer. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas used to say that the Everglades is a test. It's going to be a scientific test of our, you know, hydrology, and, uh, you know, it's going to be a planning test of how we do our development and smart growth. This is going to be a test of mankind's ability to say enough is enough, to say, you know, our priorities are not only the next dollar. And to say there's a limit to how much humans can control the natural world. South Florida was once completely swampland. We took half of it from Mother Nature, and at some point she's gonna take some of it back. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas also used to say that there are no other Everglades in the world. 
And for that reason alone, they're worth saving. Could you describe the Everglades for someone who's never been there? Well, it's, it's a flat terrain in some of the grassy areas out in the sawgrass area. You can see the wind, a gust of wind coming at you for half a mile before it hits you. At night, you know, when all the animals start their uh, communicating, it's one of the noisiest places you'll find. Out here in the glades, life wakes up at night, but then a natural occurrence will, will occur and everything will get quiet. I know one time I was out there and uh, something happened and all the animals had to be quiet. I could hear a car rolling down a highway about 10 miles away, you know, just from the quietness of it. It's a wondrous place. It's been good to my people. You know, it's still good to my people. We would love to see it continue for as long as possible. What would it look like to let go? To accept that maybe we should never have developed South Florida and let nature, as much as we've messed with it, take it back. On the last episode of this season, we visit a very different community in Louisiana that's had no choice but to let the water take their home. Whenever it comes to us using the word retreat, it's not easy because it's the only place that a majority of us has ever known as home. That's next time on How We Survive. How We Survive is hosted by me, Amy Scott. Grace Rubin produced this episode with production help from Haley Hirschman and Olivia Zhao. Caitlin Esch is our senior producer. Our editor is Jasmine Romero. Sound design by Chris Julin and audio engineering by Brian Allison. Archival sound from Florida International University, the State Archives of Florida, Pralinger Archives, and the Travel Film Archive. Aerial support provided by Lighthawk. Special thanks this week to Peter Balanon-Rosen and Jack Davis. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Francesca Levy is the executive director of On Demand. And Neil Scarborough is the general manager of Marketplace. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy.